Alright, it says we're live. Alright, welcome folks to my... Make sure you guys like, comment, and share. Um, like this video, comment if you're here, comment if there's any issues, like you can't hear my headset, which, yep, is on. So, uh, yeah, just let me know. And uh, I totally expect to have technical difficulties along the way. That is... Uh, part of the culture here now with the Eskimo show <laughs> and um, yeah comment if you can think of a better name than the Eskimo show because <laughs> I feel like it's almost unimaginative and uh, it's just kind of what we've been going for right now <laughs> I haven't thought of anything better but yeah I'm just waiting until more folks are able to join in and let me know if you're here um, also be sure to follow me on Instagram uh, Facebook MeWe, Twitter, YouTube. Uh, I do have a float account, but I'm still testing it out. <laughs> um, I'm still working my way through the app. I don't know exactly how to use it yet, but I am on float now. So, and uh, let's see, let's go through a couple of announcements waiting for more folks to join in here. Uh, this weekend is the Breaking Boundaries event in Tunica, Mississippi. Now, unfortunately, I will not be able to make it. However, um, you'll be able to see so many other folks there like uh, Spike Cohen, Matt Wright, Cajun Libertarian, uh, Adam Kokesh. Uh, there's so many folks and it should be a great event and it's for a good cause. So make sure you check that out. I hear that they still have brunch tickets available. Um, so be sure to check that out. And uh, pre-register online, I believe, is still open. So go ahead and check that out online. Uh, and they're raising money for, uh, what is it, the Mercy Teens Challenge, uh, helping folks get sober, helping folks, you know, that have an addiction problem. So it is for a good cause. Uh, let's see, next announcement. Um, I almost have a website, folks. Uh, it's almost ready. Uh, and then hopefully within the next week or so, it should be going live and I will have a website, which is super exciting. And uh, it'll be linked to my merch store, which I do have a merch store. It is live. It is good to go. That is um, on Teespring. And uh, yeah, so uh, that should be up and running pretty soon. And then this Saturday, so I won't be going to the Breaking Boundaries event, you know, due to stuff coming up. But on Saturday, I will be at the Palmer Weed Smackdown this Saturday. And I hear it's the 10th annual Weed Smackdown event that they have. So uh, pretty much we have invasive weeds here in Palmer and we are relying on volunteers to get together. And for about an hour and a half, we're gonna be doing nothing but picking weeds. And afterwards there's free food, live music. Um, just make sure you bring your own water and gloves. And that'll be, we'll be starting at 11 a.m. at the downtown pavilion. So, all right, looks like folks are filtering in. We're getting some comments going, which is exciting. So, love to see that. Yeah, be sure to like, comment, and share. Uh, comment and let me know that you're here. Uh, comment and say if you're going to the Breaking Boundaries event. That's super exciting. Uh, go ahead and let me know in the comments section. And uh, people are already doing uh, Cajun versus Eskimo. And quite honestly, when it comes to seafood, whatever floats your boat, you know, <laughs> uh, whatever makes you happy. My preference will always be Alaska seafood and not Cajun. <laughs> but uh, yeah, folks are coming in. Alrighty. 
So those are the announcements I have today. Before I get into today's topic, I actually, I would like to provide a trigger warning. This is probably going to be the most graphic and most important subject I will ever cover. And this subject means so much to me. Um, this episode does include um, graphic details about abuse and death of children. And so it may be too much for some folks to handle. Um, I have spent a lot of months researching this subject, and so I just wanted to put a trigger warning out there for those that it is graphic. Um, it is very intense. So just want to put that out there. And like I've said, this is a topic I've wanted to talk about for months, and I feel like it's important I talk about this. Um, as a woman of Yupik descent, I've heard stories from my family, and um, I'm happy that stories are finally coming to light on mainstream media. And I feel like I finally have a platform to share this story. And I just hope by telling this story, telling the details and the history, that it helps make a difference and that people will understand more about what is going on and the importance about this. And what I'm talking about is uh, pretty much the cultural genocide that has been waged on Native Americans, specifically targeting, targeting children. And so to start off, I'm going to start from the very beginning from, well, not the very beginning. I'm going to start from the 1800s, late 1700s, and talking about how Native Americans were seen as savages. And that was the term used, savages, barbaric, what have you. So people like Thomas Jefferson wanted them to switch from the practice uh, or switch from their practices of nomadic life and choose a more husbandry and household arts is the term he used, husbandry and household arts. And James Madison said it's time to complete the work of transitioning the Indians from habits of the savage arts and comforts of social life. So this is a textbook case of government officials thinking that they know better than you on how to live your own life. So moving on with that, uh, James Monroe in the State of His Union Address in 1818 was quoted of saying, experience has clearly demonstrated that independent savage communities cannot long exist within the limits of a civilized population and continue to say the control of the United States over them, them being, as he said, savage communities, should be complete and undisputed. Could you imagine today a, a president saying that control over one race of people should be complete and undisputed? That is exactly what James Monroe said. And in his speech, he also encouraged Congress to take action on this. He said, I present this subject to adopt this subject to the consideration of Congress on the presumption that it may be found expedient and practicable to adopt some benevolent provisions. And so what he meant by benevolent provisions is he wanted to provide resources to Native Americans to join and assimilate to a more civilized life. 
They believed that the savage way of life was undesirable and that if given benevolent provisions, they would volunteer to do away with their savage ways and become more civilized in society. So this started the Indian Civilization Act of 1819, which was passed on March 3rd. And what it was was $10,000 annually for Indian education. And over the next 10 years, 52 schools were administered by the federal government or Christian missions. Uh, and they initially started out by a choice. They emphasized that it was a benevolent provision. However, attendance was low and the savage Indians, as they put it, didn't want to give up their way of life, their way of life, which was nomadic. And so before Monroe left office in 1825, that's when they started to force children to attend these schools. He also addressed before he left office that he recommended all Indians be removed and relocated west of the Mississippi. So this is the start of forcing children to attend school to assimilate and become more civilized, as they put it. So moving forward to later in the 1800s, there is a man by the name of Richard Henry Pratt. And after leaving the army, he he rounded up a few Native American men, uh, dressed them in military clothes, uh, taught them English, uh, and showed that he can take Native Americans and assimilate them to a civilized life. And so this is what started the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. And this is known as the first Native American boarding school. And Richard Henry Pratt was quoted of saying, kill the Indian, save the man. And that was the mantra, the motto of the school was, quote, kill the Indian, save the man. So children were taken from all over and forced to attend. And these children for, were from hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from home. It was cultural genocide through assimilation and indoctrination. These children were forced to come here and they were stripped of their traditional clothes. Boys had to have their hair cut short. Additionally, they were given new Christian names. They were stripped of their Native American identities. And they couldn't even speak their native language or perform cultural practices. Essentially, their whole identity was stripped from them and they were whitewashed in what the government and the church saw as civilized. So most of the photos that you see, if you look up these events, are actually from this Carlisle Ind Indian Industrial School. This school was pretty much a propaganda school, showing its effectiveness of the program. Uh, for example, they had a lot of before and after photos. So before it would show a child in native regalia and afterwards it would show them you know, in a military-esque uniform, their hair was cut short and showing the effectiveness of the program. And it worked. The program worked and over 350 schools were created. 
they adopted the militaristic and rigid structure of Carlisle school model. And it's not sure exactly the number of schools that were created, like all of them, because it wasn't always documented. So in the 1900s, 20,000 native children were in these schools. And by 1925, that more than tripled. More than 60,000 children were forced to attend these schools. Again, this is a rough estimation because not all children were documented. So the parents that didn't just comply were incarcerated and many were sent to Alcatraz prison. So the parents had no say in it. The children were literally by force taken from their homes and were forced to go to these schools. And parents that didn't just comply, as someone might say today, were incarcerated. And by 1926, more than 80% of indigenous school-aged children were attending boarding schools. The living conditions of these schools were awful. Schools had recurring outbreaks of influenza, mumps, measles, chickenpox, and tuberculosis. And this was uh, contributed to by many factors. So there was overcrowding. There wasn't a lot of room at these schools and children were stuffed into as small of a space as possible. Children were sharing beds. There just wasn't enough space for all the children that they wanted to have at these schools. Additionally, there was irregular medical care. It was unreliable, sporadic, just not regular checkups on these children. And then the children that were sick weren't quarantined from the other children. They didn't have the uh, antibiotics or medicine that we have today. And so the children were left to mingle with the other children when they were sick. These children also experienced many forms of abuse. That includes mental, verbal, physical, spiritual, and sexual abuse. For example, if children tried to speak their own language, their native tongue, teachers would pierce the child's tongue with needles. That was actually a very common practice. And if it wasn't needles, they were beaten, starved, or otherwise abused. They were told it was the language of the devil and created this image of self-hate. Imagine a telling a child that because of the language they're using, that they're going to go to hell and that their language is that of the devil. This aided in the mental and spiritual abuse that was thrust upon them. They were taught that they were savage in their ways and their cultural their culture was what was going to make them go to hell. It bred this attitude of hatred towards themselves and their families. Imagine as a child, you're indoctrinated to think that what makes you, you is damning. There was also many cases of sexual abuse that happened. There were children that were sexually abused by the teachers, the pastor, what have you, at these schools. And to hide the evidence, the girls that ended up pregnant from this sexual abuse were forced to have abortions. And then 
Subsequently, they threw the aborted fetuses in the incinerators to hide this evidence. In fact, in an interview last month with Laura Coudinier Band Chief Jason Louie, he actually talked about this. Many of his relatives attended St. Eugene's mission schools. One of his relatives was told to take a potato gunny sack to the incinerator, and he was strictly instructed to not look inside. But when he got to the incinerator, he looked inside anyways out of curiosity, and inside were aborted fetuses. Many children died from the abuse as well as neglect, starvation, and disease. And on top of that, many schools had complete separation from the parents. Children could not write back home. And the children that could write home were forced to write in English and the families at home were unable to read it. And parents weren't even notified when the child was sick or had died. Luckily, some children were able to escape these situations. They held on to their language and cultural practices. This has significantly helped in keeping alive the knowledge we have today of these indigenous groups. However, returning home wasn't easy. Around this time, many US policies were passed to significantly reduce tribal lands. And so some children had no home to return to. In fact, in a 50 year span, there were enough policies passed that the amount of native indigenous land that there was, was shrunk by two thirds. And then the many children that returned home, or at least were able to find a home to return to, they could no longer communicate with their families. They had forgotten their native language and their families only knew the native language. They didn't know English. And so, for some, the indoctrination to hate their own language, culture, and families for some children to actually believe in this hatred of themselves and their culture, and they never attempted to go home. There are actually many more things that you can research about the living conditions of these children, but these are just a few examples of the living conditions. And these conditions decide, or had started to surface in 1928, in the Merriam Report of 1928. It was submitted to the Secretary of the Interior, Hubert Work, and it was labeled the problem of Indian administration. And in this report, it was recommended to abolish the uniform course of study that only taught European American cultural values. It also said to educate younger children closer to home but unfortunately in that same recommendation, it said older children should attend non-reservation schools for higher grade work. Keep in mind, some of these younger children that we're, we're referring to were three, four, five years old. And thirdly, they recommended have Indian service, which is now known as the Bureau of Indian Affairs, provide education and skills to adapt both their own society and U.S. society. It also stated in the report that the death rates of Native American students were six and a half times higher than for any other ethnic group. So for those folks that talk about the living conditions at that time where it's common to have disease run through, you know, and 
especially with children. This report stated that students were six and a half times higher if they were Native American than any other ethnic group to pass away. It was at this point that some of the schools started to close, but not all. Although this report was submitted in, it didn't have this great resounding impact that it should have. It wasn't until the 1960s that during the civil rights movement that indigenous activism finally gained some traction. And it was with this activism that it was able to force more schools to shut down in the 1970s. And then we had the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act of 1975. The remaining schools were given to tribes in partnership with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So these were no longer completely controlled by the federal government. Now the tribes had much more control over them and they worked with the Bureau of Indian Affairs on this. And then later on, the Indian Child Welfare Act, which gave parents the legal right to refuse their child's placement in a school. This wasn't until the late 1970s. I know some of my followers were alive during that time. That means there are people alive today that were forced by the government out of their homes to attend these schools. This is how recent this history is. It's hardly history when people are alive today were impacted by this. Significantly more boarding schools closed in the 1980s and 1990s. The remaining boarding schools were located on reservations and were taken over by the tribes. As late as the 1990s, folks, I was born in the 90s. Most of my, most of the folks that follow this page were born in the 90s or earlier. And this is how recent this history is. Luckily, this felt more like a win as more and more boarding schools were being shut down and the remaining boarding schools were being taken over by tribes. However, the US government started to recognize that its assimilation project was actually, it was failing. It wasn't completely having a cultural genocide like they wanted. So a new evil was bred in the 1958. And that was the Indian Adoption Project. And what the Indian Adoption Project was, and I quote, it's to stimulate the adoption of American Indian children on a nationwide basis. And later on it says, these children will be placed primarily with non-Indian families. It went on advertising, but the Indian child has remained the forgotten child left unloved and uncared for on the reservation. And so this is what they said in the Indian Adoption Project which started in 1958. Additionally, this project was seen as a cheaper solution anyways for assimilation. Adoption is cheaper than running a boarding school. So the government had to sell this idea and what they did is they sold this to white suburban families. For example, in there's a feature stories uh, in magazines like Good Housekeeping. 
and would show a picture of a Native American child and say children are unwanted and need a chance at a new life. And these were orphans that nobody wanted. These tugged at the heartstrings of these moms in white suburban America, and it was successful. Hundreds of families were asking for Native children to adopt. However, there wasn't this ab abundance of orphans that the government was advertising about. Instead, these orphans were children that were taken from their loving homes. They weren't unwanted, they weren't forgotten, they weren't unloved, or any of that other bullshit. Adjectives that the government advertised them as. The government had made it legal to steal children as a form of assimilation and sell them to white families. The wording in this project was also vague enough to enforce these kidnappings, saying, for example, there's too many family members in the same household. It's important to note that there are many cultures, with Native Americans being one, where we don't necessarily have nuclear families in our houses. There are multiple generations, extended family members, and so it wasn't just mom, dad, and children. You also had grandparents and uncles and cousins all on the same roof. In fact, in an interview with Terry Yellowhammer of Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, she stated while working with folks impacted by these incidences that social workers would make their way into town and Native Americans felt the need to hide their children. There are people still alive today that remember this as a child, that their parents had to hide them when social workers came into town. By the 1960s, one in four Native children were living apart from their families. In an interview with Nelson Fox, he was given the Christian name of Daniel. He's from the Wickham Wemekong First Nation, he came across documents of his biological father, Victor Fox, trying to get a hold of his sons. And the Hennepin County wrote back saying that children, the children were adapting very well in their new family. This was not the case. In fact, Nelson Fox was actually being abused in his new household and resorted to self-harm and suicidal attempts. There are many more stories of adopted children being abused verbally, physically, sexually, and spiritually in their new homes. Because these children were seen as less than human, they were seen as savage, barbaric. They weren't seen as civilized. They weren't human to these families. And so it was easy to abuse them. However, the people who set the adoption project in motion reported otherwise. They said, and I quote, generally speaking, we believe the Indian people have accepted the adoption of these children by Caucasian families and have been pleased to learn the protections afforded the children through good agency adoptions. When we jump to 1974, there were hearings that were being taken place in Congress 
about the state of the Native American children. Testimonies from children affected were heard and went in detail about the abuse and mistreatment and videos of these testimonies can be seen online on YouTube. It's, it's very startling to watch. These videos are so recent, 1974, we had color then. I mean, there's colored videos of children testifying about the abuse that they're enduring or even adults that said they had children taken away from them. One of them I watched and this woman was talking about while she was pregnant, a social worker was asking if someone had adopted her child already. She was four months pregnant. From these testimonies, which what happened for almost four years, eventually passed the Indian Welfare, the Indian Child Welfare Act or ICWA. Uh, if you ever hear ICWA on the news, that this is what they were referring to. And it was, quote, designed to prevent breakup of Indian families. If removal was deemed necessary, the child had to be placed with, in order of preference, a member of the child's extended family, or a member of the child's tribe, or other Native American families. You may hear about ICWA in the news when a child who is in foster care is regained by its family and people are outraged and think that the family isn't good enough for the child. And so they take to the news saying that, you know, these Native Americans used ICWA on us to steal our child when really that's not your child. You're fostering that child. Still, today, Native children are four times more likely than white children to be placed in foster care. This prejudice is very real and alive today. And many today are still fighting these demons. Many have struggled to cope with the trauma. They've resorted to drugs alcohol, self-harm, and even suicide. For some, it is manifested into mental disorders. Imagine a child, a whole childhood where you're told how your ways are that of the devil, how you're brutally abused, and you see and watch abuse of people that look like you of course, it would manifest in mental disorders after that. The gaslighting was so effective, children blamed themselves. It's... And thought something was wrong with themselves. A child, an innocent child thought something was wrong with themselves. And it isn't helped by the victim blaming in today's society we see it in the jokes about drunk natives and the prejudice on mainstream media against natives. And if that's not bad enough, this story isn't uncommon enough. 
We've seen it in other countries too, like Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. As of July 2nd, seven schools in Canada have been searched and more than 1,500 child grave sites have been found. Some of them were in mass unmarked graves. Some of these children were as young as three years old and they were in shallow graves, sometimes only three feet deep. Keep in mind, I said only seven schools have been searched and there are still hundreds more school sites to be searched. Seven schools and more than 1,500 child grave sites have been found. So keep in mind, this isn't a full comprehensive list of events. There's so many more tragedies that could be talked about. I hope this is a, at least a good intro to this subject. This is the reality in history that we don't read about in our history books at school. If we're lucky, there's even just a sentence. This is a classic example of government stepping in under the guise of doing what's best, doing what they think is best for you. In reality, no one knows how to live your life better than yourself. History like this is why I'm such an advocate against government mandates and interferences. It's important that we wake up to the fact that government is willing and able to carry out such evils. There's no excuse for ignorance anymore. The government is willing and able to carry out such evils. There are documents of this. There is evidence. People need to wake up and see this. Luckily, many people have started to show their support on this subject. They started wearing orange using, using the social media hashtag EveryChildMatters. In fact, even in the show Molly of Denali on PBS Kids, they actually briefly talk about this subject more on a child level. It doesn't necessarily talk about all the stuff I just talked about. So it's certainly much more child friendly, but they still touch on it and they show the pain of not knowing their own culture and the struggle of reconnecting to native culture. However, I hope this isn't just a fad. I want more people to research this subject and be more knowledgeable. This isn't written in history books at school, though I feel like more people need to hear about this. And I want there to be work on accountability, on justice, and on healing. And for those that are listening that have been affected by this or would like to learn more, they can reach out to the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. It's a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and they focus on helping people understand and address the ongoing trauma created by the U.S. Indian Boarding School policy. And they focus on education, on advocacy, and resources for healing those that have been affected by this.
so with all that in mind, um, I'm going to be taking a break for a week. Um, I'm going to spend time with my family, hug them close. Uh, I will be at um, the Palmer Weed Smack That Down event on Saturday. I mean, that's supposed to be a good, wholesome event. But this is a project I've been working on for months. I've been working on this, this presentation for months. And it's been so mentally taxing. I feel so connected to this story. So, with that, I hope it was an adequate enough intro to the subject. And uh, I will talk with you folks later. Um, there won't be a Cajun and Eskimo show on Sunday. Uh, in fact, that show is actually going to be moved to Friday because of NFL season coming. Um, and there won't be an uh, Eskimo show next Thursday. So next Friday on July 16th is the next time you folks will see me. I am just going to take a break from social media. And so thank you folks for tuning in. Um, if you feel the need, please like, comment, and share this video. I want more folks to know about this story. These are all true events, well-documented. I think more people need to hear this. And um, I'm seeing comments saying that we love you, and I love you guys too for, for watching and listening about this. So with that, um, I'm go gonna go ahead and log off and uh, take a break and go see my family. And um, thank you. And I love you guys too. Do you have